Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. This is Nick Cheesman, co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. The novel coronavirus pandemic of 2020 has pushed us all into our homes. Consequently, because our and our interviewees' home internet connections are generally not as good as those at our workplaces where we usually do our interviews, you may find that sometimes the sound quality in what follows is not quite as good as usual. We're sorry for that and hope it won't interfere greatly with your enjoyment of the interview. Thanks for your understanding while we and our interviewees do our best throughout this trying time to keep on bringing you conversations about new books on Southeast Asia. Do get in touch if you have any comments or suggestions about how we're doing. Stay well, stay safe, and keep listening. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the new books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and co-host of this channel. Now, I can't start, of course, without acknowledging the extraordinary and very difficult times we're all living through right now with the coronavirus pandemic, but let's try to take a break from all the, the bad news and engross ourselves in what I think is one of the most fascinating themes of Southeast Asian history, that is the role of the ethnic Chinese. Now, we can't understand modern Thailand without understanding the role of the ethnic Chinese, and we can't understand the role of the ethnic Chinese in Thailand without understanding the history of their relationship to the Thai monarchy. And this is exactly what Wasana Wong Surawat has documented in her new book, The Crown of the Capitalists, The Ethnic Chinese and the Founding of the Thai Nation. The book explores this remarkable relationship against the backdrop of tumultuous changes in in Thailand, Southeast Asia, and, of course, China. The Opium Wars, the European colonisation of Southeast Asia, the rise of Chinese nationalism and the overthrow of the Qing dynasty in 1911, the 1932 revolution in Siam, Japanese imperialism, World War II, and the Cold War. While the relationship between the ethnic Chinese, the Thai monarchy, and China has experienced stresses and strains throughout this long period, it's endured intact, and arguably today it's stronger than ever. According to Wasana, this relationship lies at the heart of the Thai nation-state. Dr. Wasana Wong Surawat is Associate Professor of Modern Chinese History at Tulalongkorn University in Thailand. Wasana, thank you so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, and congratulations on your book. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get on to talking about your book, we always like to ask authors a little bit about themselves. Can you tell us how you became interested in Thai and Southeast Asian history, and and perhaps also why you wanted to write a book on the history of the ethnic Chinese in Thailand? 
Well, it was kind of a roundabout way of doing things, very interestingly. Originally, I wanted to do Cambodian history, Khmer history, but I was told that if I wanted to come back and teach in Thailand, especially at Chulalongkorn University, where I am based now, that there are enough Southeast Asian specialists already. <laughs> so I needed to study something else. And they suggested either India or China. So I got into doing China. And from there, I was kind of thinking I'd, I'd do Chinese history, but then I would have to come back and work in Thailand. So I wanted to do something that was relevant to research in Thailand. And aside from that, it's kind of a family history as well. I'm a fourth generation ethnic Chinese, and I have been fascinated with the family history. So I started from there. And sure enough, by the time my PhD dissertation was completed, and I revised it, rewrote it into the manuscript, it turned out to be I like to think of it as still in the genre of diaspora history, but interestingly, it appears to be heavily on the Thai Southeast Asian history side of things rather than on the Chinese history side of things, even though there, there's a lot of Chinese archival documents involved. Can you give uh, our listeners a brief summary of what you've tried to do in the book? This is going to be a, a rather bold statement, but I think it is very interesting that if you look at all the countries in Southeast Asia, I would say Thailand is the only country in which the ruling class in the 19th century are essentially the same as the ruling class in the 21st century. It's the same clan. It's the same inheriting of the, this position it is within the same class, which is very different from every other country in Southeast Asia, mainly because of the experience during the colonial period. And of course, there's a lot of argument that has been going on, whether or not Thailand was colonized, what kind of colonization it was. And I, I would say definitely that Siam or Thailand also had a colonial experience as well. But just by the sheer fact that it was not officially and completely colonized, that allowed for an interesting story of survival of the ruling class from the 19th century all the way up to the 21st century, in which you do not see in any other Southeast Asian country. The main argument of this book, The Crown of the Capitalist, is that a major part of that survival hinges upon the relationship between the ethnic Chinese entrepreneur class and the monarchy. A lot of studies of Thai history tend to be sort of detailed studies of a particular period, say, you know, the modernization reforms of King Jula Longkorn or the nineteen thirty two revolution or the Sarid period or the democracy movements in the nineteen seventies. But your book covers the period from about the early or middle nineteenth century right up until about the nineteen seventies. Why did you choose to cover such a long historical period? And perhaps also what, what challenges you faced in trying to write about uh, this long period? Well, it goes back to my doctoral thesis. My degree is actually a PhD in Chinese history. Right? <laughs> and so my doctoral thesis, which is kind of like the base of this book, goes up to the end of the Second World War. And the, the interesting thing is that if you look in the Chinese historical period, what we call the Republican period on the mainland, which is the period when the Kuomintang, or the Chinese Nationalist Party and rules, mainland China, is between 1911 and 1949. Well, interestingly, that coincides 
almost perfectly with the reign of King Wachira Woodrama VI, who was supposed to be the founder of the royal nationalist movement. He came to the throne in 1910. So I was looking at this brief period basically between the reign of King Wachirawut and the end of the Second World War, which coincides with the Chinese timetable, which is the beginning of the Republican era with the Chinese Revolution in 1911 and ends with the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. But by the time that I was working on this book, I sort of feel like a lot of things that came before the Second World War, a lot of Washita Wood's vision for the kind of his royalist nationalism or the ideas of Wichit Watakan during the Second World War, the, the kind of nationalism that was that was brought about by the Kanara Sadon or the People's Party from the 1932 revolution in, in Thailand, they only kind of come to be realized and you actually see them being carried out during this period after the Second World War. The Cold War period essentially is a period in which you see the meaning of the nation, the different nationalist narrative of King Wachira Woodrama VI, the royalist nationalism, and the kind of territorial nationalist narrative of the Kanara Sadon after the revolution is merged together and is retold in a new form after the Second World War. And I kind of feel like if I want to show that the ethnic Chinese are an important aspect of this founding of the Thai nation, it is important to expand the narrative into the Cold War period because that's when you see the Thai nation as it is now, right, start to form. So that is why I I expanded the narrative of my book to cover the Cold War period. The central theme of the book is this relationship between the ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs and the Thai monarchy. If we could start at the beginning of the story, Siam is formerly one of China's so-called tributary states. Can you say how this relationship worked? What did it mean to China and what did it mean to the Thai court? This would take us back to the, the very beginning of the Jakri dynasty, right? The end of the 18th century, early 19th century. There's been many works that deal with this issue. I think the most well-known one is Sarasin Virapon's Tribute and Profit. And essentially, I have no disagreements with Sarasin's work in that from the 18th century, we could say that China was the center of world trade. And so the China trade was the most important trade for smaller states in this area. And in fact, for, for most of the states in the world as well, the world order of the 18th century was the Chinese tribute trade system. And Siam was part of that as well. And it was the most lucrative trade for the Siamese ruling class. And of course, from the 18th century, all through the early 19th century, the Siamese court had a monopoly of international trade. So it was completely, more or less completely in control of the China trade. Like many other rulers of Southeast Asia, the most capable the most effective people to use as trade agents trading with China were the ethnic Chinese uh, merchants who basically controlled the trade network across the South China Sea. And many of them were based in Siam already. Of course, the, the relationship between the ruling class and the ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs in the Chinese tribute trade started 
before the beginning of the Zakri dynasty, but for the purposes of their studies, right, the crown and the capitalists, and for the crown, I mean the Zakri dynasty, the, the monarchy under the Zakri dynasty. For them, it started in the late 18th century when, when they started to engage with, with the tribute trade. One of the crucial turning points you identify in your book is the signing of the Bowring Treaty between the Thai court and the British in 1855. And the Bowring Treaty contains this really important provision that guarantees the principle of extraterritoriality. And you argue that extraterritoriality is crucial to understanding the status of the ethnic Chinese in Siam at that time. Can you explain how? Yes, this is very important because in the nationalist historical narrative that I grew up with all through primary school and secondary school, every time they talk about the extraterritorial rights which were granted to the colonial subjects after the Bowring Treaty in 1855, they always talked about it as a loss. In fact, because I came to this story from a Chinese studies point of view, and I studied East Asia, and I realized that the other countries, they seem to take this loss much more seriously than the Thai ruling class. I mean, the Japanese, for example, they negotiated a way they abolished extraterritorial rights since before the end of the 19th century. But it did not seem to, why was it not an urgent matter for the, for the Thai ruling class? And then it basically, it was only completely abolished under the Kanara Sadon government, under the People's Party in 1938. And so when it came to look at things more clearly, I saw that it was actually beneficial for the royalist ruling class because it was sort of a an obvious privilege for colonial subjects to be in Siam. It made colonial subjects in Southeast Asia prefer Siam to any other place, basically because all the rest of Southeast Asia had been completely colonized, but Siam wasn't. And with that, but they still enjoyed extraterritorial rights in Siam. So what happened was, if they would decided to settle in Siam uh, and use Siam as their headquarters, they are not fully controlled by the Siamese government because they have extraterritorial rights. At the same time, they could not be fully controlled by their colonial governments either because they are in a partially independent and sovereign state. By that, the Siamese government, the royalist Siamese government, is able to attract a huge chunk of these ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs. So you have this alliance between the crown and the capitalists, and it is this class of ethnic Chinese colonial subjects who were the driving force of the Siamese economy all through the late 19th century until the early 20th century. And the thing is that even though Siam is the only marginally independent state in Southeast Asia and competing with European empires, right? Siam was not competing with neighboring countries of Southeast Asia like today. Siam in the 19th century was competing with empires. And the only reason why they could remain competitive through that period is because basically Siam became the headquarters for the ethnic Chinese trade network across the South China Sea. That is why there was no hurry to abolish this privilege for the ethnic Chinese entrepreneur because they were the important foundation of economic stability of of the state and the ruling class. One of the the difficulties in writing about the ethnic Chinese in Siam at this time is how, how diverse they were. And you mentioned this in the book. You argue in the 19th century there were or late 19th century, there were 
three broad categories of Chinese and they were legally subject to different authorities. Can you explain these uh, different categories and how it affected the position of the ethnic Chinese in Siam? They are diverse in many ways. They're diverse in their dialect, in where they come from in China, and they kind of stick together according to dialect groups. They have different direct uh, associations. They have different clan associations. They also have different secret societies that they that they belong to. So they're that diverse in that way. They're also diverse in their political leanings. And this, this diversity in political leaning also kind of goes with the political development in, in back in China as well. So you have the ethnic Chinese that support the old regime, support the Qing dynasty, uh, wants the imperial regime to continue you have the ethnic Chinese who support the revolution. Later on, you have the ethnic Chinese who support the communists as well, right? So in terms of status, legal status is also very diverse as well. You have the ethnic Chinese who are second, third, fourth, fifth generations in, in Siam, and, and many of them have started to work and become officials in the court already. Many of them Siamese subjects. Uh, viewed by the the Siamese government as as Siamese subjects, but at the same time, because la- later on in the book I talk about the citizenship code in the in the early twentieth century, and because of the conflicting citizenship code of China and of Thailand, a lot of these ethnic Chinese that the Thai state con- considered to be Siamese subjects are also considered as Chinese subjects or citizens of China. As well, so this this is the the first group, and then you have the group that attain colonial sub, uh, subject status from some ways, either being born in colonies in Southeast Asia or or having parents who were colonial subjects, or being registered by the foreign companies that they work for, or many different ways that they would acquire this colonial subject status. In this sense, the usually is the upper-class ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs. So the richest among the ethnic Chinese would be either British or French colonial subjects. And their status, uh, legal status, is really interesting because the colonial states, their colonial masters, would consider them colonial subjects. If they run into trouble with the law in Siam, they they will also use their colonial subject status to enjoy extraterritorial rights. But at the same time, the Chinese state oftentimes still consider them Chinese subjects and still expect from them to send remittance, to support the nationalist movement and all that. And then the third part of this group is that a lot of them also serve the Siamese crown. Many of them have official titles in the Siamese court. And so they are also working for the crown. And when you have this kind of royalist nationalism that says, if you are loyal to the crown, then you are a Siamese nationalist, it's very interesting because this kind of royalist nationalism of King Wachiraudrama VI allows these ethnic Chinese colonial subjects who are considered subjects of both the colonial governments and the Chinese government to be part of the the Thai nation as well. And then, of course, the the last group that I talk about at times, but not so much, are the ethnic Chinese who come in and retain their 
Chinese nationality and have not yet acquired the Thai nationality. So they are Chinese subjects in Siam without extraterritorial rights. This last group, I would say, would be at the, to put it very crassly, would be at the bottom of the food chain, not enjoying the rights of Siamese subjects or Thai citizens, at the same time not having extraterritorial rights either. In the early 20th century, the Qing dynasty is on the verge of collapse. Chinese nationalism is on the rise. The nationalist leader, uh, Sun Yat-sen, he actually travels to Siam, I think, on at least four occasions to seek support from the ethnic Chinese uh, there for his movement. But um, you mentioned King Jun-Longkorn actually deports him uh, in 1908 for making anti-monarchy statements. So at this time, Chineseness in, in Siam starts to become associated with republicanism, and this is you discuss this in quite some detail. It's quite worrying for the the Thai monarchy. Can you tell us how the rise of Chinese nationalism affected the the position of the ethnic Chinese in in Siam? What happened with Sun Yat-sen in his supposedly last visit to Siam was that he gave a speech in Chinatown. It was vehemently against the Qing dynasty. So it was anti-monarchist, but it was anti-Chinese monarchist. <laughs> but anyway, that made uh, the Thai monarchy uncomfortable. But the thing was, when he was in Thailand, and this is something that the people don't talk about, when Sun Yat-sen was in Thailand, he claimed extraterritorial rights as well. And so, in fact, legally, he could not be deported. And so what happened was they actually did not deport him. They just requested that he left the kingdom as soon as possible. And then he left soon after that, after they requested him to. But the interesting thing is that a lot of the Chinese nationalist movements that came into being in the late 19th, early 20th century was driven by these people who were also colonial subjects. One might have heard an important uh, slogan of the Chinese revolutionaries in, in the early 20th century is that the The overseas Chinese is the mother of the revolution, right? So the idea was that the overseas Chinese all over the world would send money, would send support, would help the Chinese in the revolution in China. And of course, Sun Yat-sen himself was also at one point an overseas Chinese and and traveled extensively across the world. And a lot of his associates, a lot of his supporters in Siam were also colonial subjects as well. And in fact, the reason why they can engage in many of these political activities and not be deported or not be imprisoned or not be jailed is precisely because they have this colonial subject. But this is something that you don't see in the nationalist narrative of China at all. (laughs) And even in in, in the Thai nationalist narrative, or, or even nowadays, people don't like to admit that their ancestors had colonial status. Their ancestors were British subjects or French subjects. But the point was that having this extraterritorial rights allowed them the freedom to actually pursue their nationalist project in China, right? So now, how does that affect the Thai monarchy? In fact, quite interestingly, the Alliance actually is not weakened by the rise of uh, Chinese nationalism. The Chinese nationalist leaders in Siam actually have quite a good relationship with the Thai monarchy and the Thai court all through the early 20th century. But the thing is that they were only interested in overthrowing the Qing dynasty, in establishing a republic in China. 
they were not interested in doing the same thing in Thailand because, in fact, they 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 felt that the land of their ancestors is China, and and Thailand was the base for doing business, and things were good as it was for them with their good relationship with with the crown and all that. So, if it was only a matter of using Thailand as a base to support the revolution in China, that would not be a problem for the Thai monarchy. It only started to become a problem for the Thai monarchy. When they expanded into the Thai language, when people started to translate Sun Yat-sen's ideas into Thai, and when you start to have ethnic Chinese leaders in Siam publishing bilingual newspapers, for example. So what the Siamese crown was worried about was, was not the ethnic Chinese nationalist movement per se, but it was that this nationalist idea, this anti-monarchist nationalist ideas might leak into the Thai general public, might leak into the Thai language media and cause problems. Or if Thai subjects started to go to Chinese schools and know more about Chinese language or Chinese revolutionary ideas start to be translated into Thai and published, this becomes a danger and this this phenomenon of chinese nationalism start, starting to leak into the thai media came in the early 20th century especially towards the middle of uh, washira wood's reign in the late 19 teens and the early 1920s at this point i'd like to briefly pause for a sponsor's message when we come back i'd like to talk to you about this the central figure really in in this book uh, king washira wood New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Wasana Wongsurawat about her new book, The Crown and the Capitalists. Your book has an unlikely hero, King Wachirao Wood, also known as King Rama VI. I think in, you know, in Thai scholarship, at least English language scholarship, perhaps King Wachirao Wood tends to get a bad press. You know, he pushes this conservative monarchy-centered nationalism. He's often seen as maybe not the most successful administrator, perhaps someone who was more interested in you know, literary and artistic pursuits. And of course, he writes this notorious racist essay about the Chinese in the Thai kingdom in 1914, titled The Jews of the Orient. But you argue that the king's view of the ethnic Chinese has been understood, as has the king himself. Can you tell us how? Well, I definitely think that Washington was shortchanged by historians in Thailand and around the world as well. I mean, there's not enough studies uh, on him, in even in the Thai language. My Interest in King Wachira would, in fact, comes from my personal experience living in Thailand at the end of the 20th century and the early 21st century as well. And I think some of our Thai listeners can relate in the sense that we are constantly bombarded by propaganda of sorts. And in fact, if one would go back and study the propaganda of the early 20th century, I think many people would agree with me that the most capable propagandist was definitely King Wachira Wood. I mean, this is a head of state who writes his own polemics, his own essays, and publish them in the newspapers, 
he even draws his own caricatures and he writes his own propaganda plays and carries them out and all that. And it's of very high quality compared to what we have during the Cold War period and all the way up to the present. And it's amazing. I mean, this person is brilliant. If you read his stuff and compare it to what we have today, you have to give him some credit for that. That's one thing that, that got me interested in his work. And another interesting thing is that, of course, everyone talks about the Jews of the Orient, right? And it's awful. It's racist. And, you know, there's, you cannot explain that away. But the point is that if you look at where he gets his money in the whole dynasty up to Rama the Eighth, we're not going to talk about Rama the Ninth because his reign was very long and it was during the modern period. It was throughout the Cold War, so it's a different story. But Rama the First, Rama the Eighth, it's very clear that Washirawut himself, Rama the Sixth, was the reign that received the highest number of donations. And he carried out many of his major projects completely with donation monies. He bought a, he bought a whole battleship with donation money. He had the Wild Tiger Corps and all that with donation money. And who were the main people giving him these donations? It was the SA Chinese entrepreneurs. Very clearly, there's no question about that. And in fact, he wrote other stories. He wrote an, an article thanking his Chinese friends for giving him so much money. I think it's too simple. It's too simplistic to just say, you know, he singled out the ethnic Chinese as the other in which the Thai nation was to be defined and he was anti-Chinese. I think that is too simplistic, right? And so that brought me back to look at the relationship between the monarchy and the ethnic Chinese entrepreneur and especially the ones with extraterritorial rights, as I've, I've said earlier. And it led me to conclude that in fact... This royalist nationalism, by saying that anyone can be a nationalist if they devoted to the crown, if they showed devotion, if basically if they donate a lot of money to the crown, then you can be part of the Siamese nationalist project. It's precisely so that these ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs, the richest people in the realm, can be part of this national project and you can build the nation with their money, even though they still have their colonial subject status, even though they even still have their Chinese nationality, but they can still be part of this national project. And, and so that, of course, becomes the name of, of the book, the title of the book, The Crown of the Capitalist, the Ethnic Chinese, and the Founding of the Thai Nation. That is, in fact, Washington's brilliance to be able to take advantage of this, this something that is seen as a disadvantage, this extraterritorial rights situation, and, and, and go with it. Of course, being racist is something that should be repeatedly condemned, but I think underneath that facade, there's a very cunning, mutually beneficial relationship between the crown and the ethnic Chinese capitalists. And I think the fact that Washita would disguise it so completely that even, you know, historians around the world would, everyone would quote Jews of the Orient and would, would not realize that, in fact, behind the scenes, they're working together. And one important part of this is that that carries on in the popular imagination all the way up to the present. And, and you see this th throughout the Cold War as well. And even during the, the time of the People's Party, the Canada's Down government, when there's economic problems, when people talk about the problem of poverty in this country, 
They always blame the Chinese. They talk about the Chinese middleman, the sly Chinese business person, the Chinese who own the rice mill and, you know, take advantage of the poor Thai farmers and all that, right? And by presenting that the monarch dislikes the Chinese, I think it kind of soothes the sentiment of the masses who are sort of sons of the stock soil, but then at the same time are in fact second-class citizens in comparison with the ethnic Chinese who enjoy extraterritorial rights and have close relationship with the, with the crown all through that period. I'm not saying this is a virtuous or a nice thing or a good thing, but I'm saying it is very effective politically. It is very politically savvy for Washira Wood to have devised this system. And I think he, he needs to get more credit for that. Another crucial turning point in your book is 1932 when the, the People's Party carries out a bloodless coup against the absolute monarchy in Siam and establishes a constitutional monarchy. And I didn't know this, the nationalist government in China was one of the first to congratulate the People's Party. And you discuss a fascinating discussion about a little-known secret document in Chinese called Guidelines for Sino-Siamese Nationalist Movement, which appears to promote a second revolution in Siam to get rid of the monarchy altogether with the aim of ending the influence of the British Empire in Siam and creating a closer relationship by Siam and the Republic of China. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the Chinese government viewed Siam and Siam's ethnic Chinese in this post-1932 period? When, when you look at the Chinese documents, which I, which I looked at in, in the archives in Taipei, it's quite clear that the leaders of the nationalist Chinese government at the time, 1932, was uh, Generalismo Jiang Kai-shek, had a very different understanding of what the revolution in Thailand was about. Even though the ethnic Chinese in, in Thailand, the entrepreneurs who were supporting the revolution in 1911, 1912, like I said, had a good relationship with the, the monarchy and, and had no interest in overthrowing the monarchy in, in, in Thailand. Uh, but I think the, the, the central party in China, the Chinese nationalist government, had a very different idea. And, and, and the way they, they saw it was, why would you just do half a revolution? I mean, how could it be a, a complete revolution if, if you still have the monarchy? And, and of course, my book also discussed at, at an earlier failed uh, attempt at overthrowing the monarchy, and that is the, the failed coup in 1912, earlier on in, in Washira Wood's reign. And that one was very clearly influenced by the Chinese Revolution uh, and by Sun Yat-sen's ideas. And in fact, the leaders of the People's Party, the Kanara Sadan, also, Bidi Panomyong, also said that he was inspired by that failed coup. And so from the point of view of the Chinese government, the Chinese Nationalist Party, the failed coup in 1912 was clearly a Republican coup. It included a plot for a regicide. They were they were going to assassinate King Washina Wood and, and have a republic, right? Like the Republic of China. So if, you know, some leaders of the People's Party say that the 1932 Siamese Revolution was inspired in part by the failed coup of 1912, it would lead the Chinese government at the time, the Chinese Nationalist Party, to think that 
it wanted to become a republic like China. And it, it, it's, it's very clear that that was not on the agenda of the People's Party at the time. And therefore, it made the Thai government also worried that the Chinese might be supporting some plot of, of, of a second revolution. And that created a kind of a difficult relationship between the Thai government of the People's Party and the ethnic Chinese in Thailand. Aside from the, the fact that the leaders of the People's Party already saw the ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs as having a close relationship with the crown, right? They were the ones who pushed for the complete abolition of extraterritorial rights so that these Chinese entrepreneurs would then lose the privilege they had and in a way to weaken, to further weaken the Xi'an regime as well. So they already had some kind of suspicions, but strangely enough, this idea that the Republic of China would support a second revolution headed by the ethnic Chinese in Thailand, even though that would be an anti-monarchist revolution, caused the Thai revolutionary government to be suspicious of both the, the Chinese government and the ethnic Chinese cohort in Thailand. You just touched on this. In 1938, the People's Party government finally succeeds in negotiating an end to extraterritoriality rights. How did this affect the ethnic Chinese? For the richest and most powerful, this was a drawback because for the first time, they did not have this privilege of, of extraterritorial rights. And you would see that, interestingly, a lot of the crackdowns on the Chinese community came after Washirawut's reign, especially in the years leading up to the Second World War, under the People's Party, Chinese schools, more Chinese schools were shut down. Uh, it was easier to shut down Chinese newspapers for good, because in the past, the owners of the Chinese newspapers would usually be Chinese colonial subjects. And so when, the, when their newspapers shut down for writing something seditious, they would just go and start a new newspaper the next day. And, and they would just be back again. But uh, once they did not have this extraterritorial rights anymore, it was much easier to imprison people, deport people, or actually very seriously crack down on these activities that are seen as a threat to national security. And, and so, in fact, you see a lot of this much more during the time of the People's Party. And this is not to, once again, this is not to say that the absolute monarchy provided more freedom of the press or freedom of expression or anything, but I would say the, the main threat to the security of the absolute monarchy was the Siamese masses, was the revolution from the from the commoners, right? There was no threat from the ethnic Chinese because they, they had this alliance together already. But for the People's Party government, they were trying to uh, diminish the powers of the old regime. So it was very important to take away that very important financial base of the old regime, which is the uh, ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs. And they were supported by the colonial regimes. So it was important to abolish this extraterritorial rights as a way to kind of strengthen the new regime and diminish the influence of the old regime. Eventually, it I would say this became the undoing of, of, the, of the revolutionary government, the revolutionary party, especially because 
when they entered into the Second World War on the side of the Japanese, that was kind of like the one thing that the ethnic Chinese cannot work with, even though they were, they tried to be very flexible and they tried to do business with everyone and all that. But once it came to the Sino-Japanese War and the People's Party joined on the side of the Japanese, it sort of drove the ethnic Chinese further, close, even closer to the old regime, closer to the royalists. Another fascinating episode during this period that I wasn't aware of was how you show that China's nationalist government and uh, Thailand's ethnic Chinese community played key roles during the war in supporting the Free Thai movement, this famous underground anti-Japanese movement in Thailand. Can you explain how this happened? I think this is another very hugely misunderstood in in the narrative of, of Thai history in the Second World War and all through the Cold War period. And I think this is a this is a very important example of how Thai historical narrative has been so dominated by US narrative of the Cold War. And it kind of goes back to the way the Second World War was taught. And of course, if you ask anyone in the streets in Thailand today, anyone who, who went through the Thai educational system that why was Thailand not defeat in the Second World War? And everyone would say, oh, it's because of the Free Thai Movement. And the Free Thai Movement supported uh, the Allies, even though the government supported the Japanese, but the government was not representing the people. So this is this is the main narrative. And who are the Free Thai Movement? Well, the leader is was the uh, Thai minister to Washington, D.C., and then there were some students and royalties who were in exile in Britain. And then there were some who were part of the government in Thailand, like Brady Yong, who was a finance minister uh, in People's Crimes government. Now, this does not make sense if you ask further questions, because why would members of People's government who were part of this, essentially were part of this decision to join the war on the side of Japan, why would they do this to their comrades in, in the revolution? That's one thing. Secondly, if you look at what people say are the members of the free time movement, you see groups that are very seriously conflicted, uh, especially the, this personality of Teni Pramod, who was the, the leader, the founder of the free time movement, who was the prime minister to Washington, D.C., was very much on the opposite side of politics uh, to Brady Phnom Yong. And then you wonder if they were brothers in arms and they were in the free time movement together, why do they hate each other so much after the Second World War? And they were completely on, on different sides of politics. So I started looking into the Chinese documents and then I found that, oh, the, the Chinese were in, involved in this as well. And then I saw that, that Brady had sent delegates to negotiate with Chiang Kai-shek towards the end of the war and all that. And he and his delegates had claimed that they were sent by Brady and they were Free Thai agents. But when the Chinese checked with Seni to ask if these guys were Free Thai agents, Seni said very clearly that no, and Brady was not a Free Thai agent either. And then while I was checking all that, I found that Jing Kai-shek had made a broadcast to the world in February 1943 endorsing the Free Thai movement. So it was very strange what was going on here. And in fact, Brady sent, only sent his delegates after Jing Kai-shek made this international broadcast. So I came to the conclusion that Brady only tried to contact Jiang Kai-shek so that some parts of the People's Party government would survive the defeat of Japan in the Second World War. 
to do that, he had to, he had to claim to be part of the free time movement. And the Republic of China was the only leading ally power that had not been contacted by the royalists. This is another thing, is that the free time movement uh, groups in the U.S. and in the U.K. were very clearly royalists. So the royalist free time movement would make connections with former imperialist countries, with Britain, with the U.S., with France as well. There was only one main leader of the Allied powers who did not have imperialist historical baggage with Thailand, and that was the Republic of China. So that was a kind of a window of opportunity that 3D can connect with and hope that the People's Party would be able to survive the defeat of Japan in, in, in the Second World War. And this is why after the Second World War, one strand of the free time movement, 3D strand, all met with very unfortunate endings. They died, they were imprisoned, they were exiled, uh, as opposed to the free time members from the US and the the UK who disproportionately became prime ministers and ministers and took very high positions in the government after the Second World War. The reason why we don't hear about it is because very soon after the World War, mainland China became the People's Republic of China, and it was the biggest threat of the free world in, in Asia. And all of China's contribution to the Second World War in Asia were sort of whitewashed by the U.S. narratives. That is why we, until now, very few people know about Jin Kai-shek's uh, historical broadcast in February 1943, which was the first Allied power endorsement of the free time movement. Another subject your book touches on is, is race riots. And I guess when we think of race riots involving the ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, we tend to think of Malaysia in May 1969 or Indonesia in May 1998. But in the latter part of your book, you document two tragic race riots in Bangkok's Chinatown area, which have been, as far as I can see, virtually erased from Thai history, the so-called Yawarat incident in September 1945 and the Palat Palachai riot of 1974. Why do these riots break out and why don't we know more about them? The Yawarat incident followed the end of the Second World War. Essentially, it it came from the attempt of the ethnic Chinese in Bangkok, Chinatown, to celebrate the Chinese National Day, which at the time was the 10th of October, and they were practicing at the end of September with their parades and all that. And there was an issue about them only having Chinese flags uh, on display and did not have Thai flags. And so they were prevented from displaying the Chinese flag and all that. And it broke out into a, a riot. The riot in 19... 19- represented the Thai government and Thai ethnic Thai general public's suspicions against the ethnic Chinese because there was a lot of anti-Chinese laws and regulations during the course of the Second World War and then China won the war and then it was sort of like the ethnic Chinese saying we told you so, or you know, we were right. There was a high level of insecurity that Thailand would not be included among the victorious countries. The peace agreement had, haven't been, hadn't been finalized yet, and there was a high level of suspicions that, that the ethnic Chinese would try to get back at the Thai government and try to support something that would be a, a threat to Thailand being able to 
be part of the victorious nations. So that suspicion kind of sparked this riot. And, and of course, so this is something that the, the Thai government does not want to talk about because it, it re- brings into question why the Thai should be allowed to be victorious in the Second World War. And it also brings the story of, of the Chinese contribution that the Thai government during the Cold War and the U.S. does not want to highlight at all. So that's 1945. The one in 1974 is very much a a red scare situation. So a taxi cab pulled up in front of a movie theater wanting to pick up a fare. And then some police officers came in and wanted to find him for uh, parking in front of the movie theater. And so he made a fuss. And so they kind of rough him up in public and drag him to the, the police precinct. And then that ended up in people demonstrating in front of the police station for against uh, police extortion and police brutality and all that. And then it ended in a, vi- a very violent uh, riot that, that lasted for, for weeks, actually. This is very much the scare of the ethnic Chinese working class who were associated with the communist movement in Thailand and with the scare of, of communism of the times as well. Interestingly, it did not make Kip into the popular memory, even though it's sandwiched between the 14 October incident in 73 and the 6 October incident in 76, right? This Paplachai riot was in 74. In fact, the, 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 there was a failure to connect between the student movement and these ethnic Chinese. Most of them were of the working class. And once again, this is this is another story of the violent uh, suppression of the working class during this this Red Scare period. And it didn't even make it into popular history because the student movement did, did, wasn't interested in it either. And that's why we don't hear about it, not even as much as the 6th October incident. Sadly, we're running out of time. But before <laughs> we conclude, we have a traditional question that we ask interviewees. Would you be able to tell us whether you are working on a new project and what that project might be? Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll try to be brief on this one. Uh, my second book is called The Crown and the Communists. So you can buy it in a box set like, 10 years from now or something. <laughs> but essentially, I'm looking at uh, the relationship between the royal family and the Chinese Communist Party in the reform period from Deng Xiaoping onwards. And I think a large part of this studies would be the large body of works by Her Royal Highness Princess Mahatma Rinton on China and her role in developing the relationship between the People's Republic of China and Thailand. And it's, it's very interesting that you have a a, a Chinese a communist party, right, which is which has a very special relationship with a very high ranking member of the Thai royal family, and and this has, I think, in the twenty first century, become one of the most important foreign relations of Thailand. So I'm investigating that. Uh, the period I'm covering would be from the nineteen seventies all the way up to the present. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, The Crown and the Capitalists, the Ethnic Chinese and the Founding of the Thai Nation, published by University of Washington Press. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with the history of the Southeast Asian Chinese 
like Wang Gangwu's uh, Home is Not Here or Anthony Reid's History of Southeast Asia Critical Crossroads. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. <laughs>